This morning, the message is entitled, The Father's Heart. Now, I know the bulletin says something different. I was not the bulletin's fault. I was toying with the, with the, with the title. And um, the title came into clearer focus at the end of the sermon. Usually, the title comes into clear focus at the very beginning. But as I looked at the continual unfolding of the message, it became very clear at the very end that it was about the Father's heart. So bow your heads with me this morning as we go before the Lord and ask for the Father's heart, the Heavenly Father's heart, to find our heart. Loving, gracious Father in heaven, we are so moved that there is a place in your heart for every one of us. We are not your grandchildren or your nephews and nieces, but we are your children. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And so today as we take a glimpse into what the Father's heart is all about, our Heavenly Father and our earthly fathers, we pray that this message can find fertile soil and speak to the responsibility, the blessing, and the call upon each father represented here and those that may be watching and listening. Take my mind, Lord, and imbue it with your spirit, and may all the glory go only to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to begin with a scripture this morning found in the book of Proverbs chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go there with me. If you don't have your Bibles, we try to make it easy for you. It is going to appear on the screen. I was raised by a father that decided at 49 years old he was going to raise me as his son. I was only three months old when I was literally left in his care. His wife was 50 years old. He was 49. And he decided that when my father and my mother did not come back to pick me up at the end of their day, he decided that he was going to be my father. Every now and then I revisit that story because I think, what would I have done if I had been given the responsibility of raising a son as a community lady, as a husband and wife that had no children. They were known as the people that would help other people with their children while they were away at work. And at the end of every day, the parents would come back and pick up their children. And one day, I won't tell you what year it was, my parents decided not to come back. And that husband and wife were faced with the question, do we turn them into the authorities or do we wait? And they waited, in one case, 13 years before my natural father showed up. And in another, almost 26, before my mother showed up. I was raised by a man that to a large degree shaped me to be who I am today. And I will intersperse some of my experiences throughout the sermon today. But I want to tell you the reason why this passage really resonates with me is because 
I was raised by a man who understands the word chastening. <laughs> this is a different generation. It's not like it was when we were being raised. When you step out of line, the neighbor chastens you. And the next neighbor chastens you. And then the father, when he comes home, he chastens you. You know, we call it spank or discipline. He was a kind man. But I remember that I learned from him that my high knee was not only for sitting, but for chastening. And today we're going to learn in a beautiful picture this context of which way the Bible is the only book that can really communicate so beautifully the ups and downs of what it means to be a father. But I'd like us to read this scripture together. If you can do so, follow me. If you're at home and you want to read, the Lord will hear you. But let's read together what you see on the screen. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and verse 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I remember those days when Papa would say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I always tried to figure that out. How is that going to work? <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, while he's pulling out his belt or he tells me to go to the backyard and get a switch, he'd say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I never figured it out until the day that I was leaving home. He was a strong man. I only saw him shed tears twice in his life when he lost his wife in 1971 and the day while I was leaving home in 1983. He came to my room after we had been married just three months. My wife and I didn't have anything but pretty much <laughs> the money in our checking account and the clothes on our back. We started out two young, clueless kids living in one room, didn't even have a full-size bed. We slept on two twin beds after we got married. And when we went to work during the day, I'd fold her bed under mine. And when we came home, she'd cook upstairs on the fourth floor in the kitchen that all the other tenants shared. Some of you people want to make sure you get everything before you get married. Cut that out. We grew together. We didn't have stuff together. We were broke together. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? We struggled together. We've been through highs and lows together. God has been faithful. But I remember that day when I recognized it was time for me to leave New York and uh, we were moving down to Florida where my wife's aunt lived, and she had family in Florida. That proved to be God's guidance because that was where I met my natural mother. That's where that door opened. Never knew her all my life, but I met her shortly after we got married. I remember that day Papa came upstairs. Um, you guys call it sunglasses today, but we called it shades. Come on, old people, say amen. Shades. Now they call it sunglasses. And he came upstairs with his green shades on and a towel over his shoulder. 
And he said, you're leaving? I said, yeah, Papa, I'm leaving. And in that West Indian accent, he was from Barbados, he said, you have everything? I said, Papa, I have everything. He said, you're sure you have everything? I said, I'm sure. I never talk about him because I love him so much. And that day, he turned around with a towel over his shoulder, lifted his shades, and wiped his eyes. And then I understand, I understood the 25 years that preceded that day when he would sit me down and tell me what I didn't want to hear when he would pay my bill when the creditors were after me, when he gave me money for a car that I didn't deserve, when he came to school and scolded me for not doing what I should have done, when he sat me down and showed me how to fix something that broke, how to paint, how to remove tile, how to use a hammer and a nail, I understood that day that he invested in me that wasn't his blood. He was a good, good father. And I look back on that. I hardly ever tell his story. I didn't plan this. I hardly talk about him because he's so deep in my heart. So excuse me for being a little uh, crybaby here. Uh, I remember when we moved away from home, that day we walked, after he wiped his eyes, I said, Papa, you really loved me, didn't you? And he said, yeah, I do. And we prayed together, and we walked down the steps of our house there in Brooklyn. We called it stoops when you get outside the brownstones. And he stood in the front yard in the gate until my car disappeared out of sight. And I watched in that mirror. He stood there. As he got older, this is not like me, sorry. As he got older, I'd go back to New York as frequently as I could just to be there for him. He never got baptized. But I think that God gave me a glimpse. When I was there in New York and I was fixing the pipes cleaning up the kitchen, making sure the house was clean from two floors. I went out and bought more than $100 worth of supplies just to clean the house because he could hardly see anymore. And the kitchen was full of dishes and the garbage can was full. The floor was a mess. And I said, I'm not going to bed until this house is spick and span. And when I went to bed that night, his room was right next to mine through a glass door 
and I heard him praying. And I peeked through and saw him on his knees. And I said, Lord, do whatever you can to save that man. He was a good, good father. So, uh, this is not in my sermon. Excuse me for being such a crybaby today. Please edit out this nose blow. I try not to be this way, but I tell you, I look back on many days, the year that I got ordained, because we lived in California at the time. He was in New York, and I'd go back home as often as I could. He taught me how to dress put my colors together. A lot of you men think my wife put my clothes together. No, I was raised by a good, good father. He would buy a suit for me. I would buy a suit for him. We'd match. He'd say, make sure your tie's straight. I iron your shirts, steam your pants. I remember going home for him on Father's Day, and he couldn't see, and he said, what did you buy me? I said, I bought you a shirt. He said, what's the color? I said, it's blue. He said, did you get me a tie? I said, yes. He said, what's the color? And he listened till I said blue. He said, good, as long as it matches. And he couldn't even see. We went out and ate together. <clears throat> he liked roti. You got to know what that is. And um, there we were sitting in a car in Brooklyn, New York, he could hardly see, but he could find his mouth because he was eating that roti like there was no tomorrow. <coughs> and then um, I got ordained in December of 1995. It was our tradition every year if I couldn't make it home. See, my wife's mom lived in Florida and my dad lived in New York and we'd go, she'd go to Florida, I'd go to New York and she visited her mom, I visited my dad. And I remember December 9th, 1995, when I got ordained in California, it was my tradition to always call him on New Year's Eve, three hours different. When it was approaching midnight and I knew it hit midnight, I'd call him and he'd pick up the phone and he'd say, Junior, I'd say, Papa, he'd say, Happy New Year. And I'd say, Happy New Year. And we'd talk a little bit, and I'd say, Papa, I love you. He'd say, uh-huh. It was hard for him to say that. He wasn't raised that way. But I knew he loved me. When I got ordained in 1995, the church was jam-packed in California. But there was one person missing in the audience, and that was him. I wanted him to live to see what his hard work had accomplished. But nonetheless, December 31st, 1995, close to, close to midnight, I walked across the living room floor to the kitchen, through the kitchen, and I was going toward the phone, and my wife said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to call, and I remembered he passed away in February of that year. I'll be okay. But you know what? I believe that God's grace is so powerful that he chose that man to step into the gap 
when my father was not there. And I am who I am today because of the fact that I had a good, good father. You see, before Jesus comes, there is going to be a return before Jesus returns. And Malachi talks about this return before Jesus returns. It is in Malachi 4. I want you to see it. Because today in this aggressive, highly technical, highly educated society, there is still a considerable failure when it comes to being a father. In some communities, in different nationalities, in different races, sometimes Father's Day is a tragedy because there's no father. In some cases, mothers have been left to raise children by themselves, single parents' homes, fathers choosing a different route. In so many ways, fathers exclude Jesus from the circle. I was reading an article just recently how a man told his son, gave him an outline of what he could be, and it was a tragedy. It was a, very, it was a shameful example of a father telling his son how worldly he could be when he should be telling him how godly he could be. But before Jesus comes, this passage is going to resonate because of God's desire for his children. Look at it. Malachi 4, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That is the message. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I wondered about this passage. It says nothing about mothers. But the problem with society as the Lord sees it is as we get nearer and nearer to the return of Jesus, God is saying the fathers, the fathers are missing what I call them to be. God did not call fathers to be the friends of their children. God called fathers to be the guide of their children, the molder of their children, the shaper of their children. Well, there were many days when Papa would sit me down um, and make me go through my multiplication tables. He'd make me write them out back and forth from, one, from 2 to 12 and 12 back to 2. And he'd make me recite them. He'd make me read. We had privileges in our home to watch television. We watched television as a privilege. Not as, not on our terms. We had, if we did our homework, we had an opportunity maybe to watch a half an hour television during the week, maybe whatever night we chose. And on the weekends, we would watch the Lawrence Welk show. Amen, old people. <laughs> Anybody know what that is? See, young folk, YouTube that. But uh, don't do it right now. And then we watched Buck Rogers and, uh, on Sunday, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. You know, those are pre we didn't, you know, we, we didn't get, TV was not something that, TV in our home, Papa owned the television plug. He would unplug the TV. <laughs> 
And when we earn the right, homework done, house clean, you ain't acting up, then we get a chance to watch TV. If we got an hour a night, that was a whole lot. So I was raised that way to understand the responsibilities of what it means to be a father. And it hurt growing up because other kids talking about shows they watch and we said, no, no, we can't watch that. We can't, no, we can't see that. And he was really serious about what we watched. But um, when that verse says nothing about mother, it is not excluding the need for both parents, but it's saying the greater need before the coming of the Lord are fathers that will get their families and their children ready for the coming of the Lord. And so we're going to dive into a story today that we're going to look at some examples, some, some deep father-son examples. And if you have your Bibles with you today, go to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 2. And there's a striking verse there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'll tell you when you get there. But very few examples in Scripture reveals the deep need for the father-child connection, like the story that we are about to walk through together. And I, I want to apologize for something that I don't normally do. Now, I don't normally use a lot of quotations from, you know, Ellen White's writings from The Servant of the Lord, but this story is so beautifully outlined in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that I cannot help but sharing with you today the unfolding of this account of a man and his two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. But look at how they are introduced into the pages of history, forever solidified in this way. The Bible says, verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. What a shocking description to begin a conversation about someone's family. The sons of Eli did not know the Lord. They were corrupt. I've learned today that children don't get corrupt. By default. But some examples somewhere along the way, either what they have viewed, what they have seen, or what a parent has failed to do, contributes or does not give them the opportunity to develop in a way that will be a glory to God. So the father can fail to do something or do something that he should not have. That's the sin of omission and the sin of commission. There are instances where the father could do something, but he doesn't. And the child, the son or the daughter, fails to get the benefit of what God would have them to be. And there are times that the father does something that he should not have that triggers in the life of that child, that son or that daughter, an idea of something that they should not be. So when the Lord recorded these verses for us, now the sons of Eli were corrupt, they did not know the Lord. It, in essence, is bringing to society's table the problem in the world today. Now, we've been facing a lot of trials in America. If you've been watching the news, 
We've been hearing about these gun shootings, these mass shootings, and it just, it just shocks me that this country is the only country in the world going through this repetitious dark spot. What's happening in the home where a child can hit 18 years old and feel no resistance, no, no kind of conscience to go out and buy a weapon and mow down his classmates or mow down people in society. Children, innocent children, or choose to mow down people just because of the color of their skin. And then oftentimes we think that, it's the, that this is an issue that's debated on both sides. You know, we are the most gun-carrying country in the world. But the gun is not doing the killing. It's the people that are doing the killing. Yet we still make these things so easily available that there are a lot of issues that are being debated, which I won't take the time to do this morning. But there's something happening behind the walls of that home that the parents are responsible for. How can you... I remember one of the, one of the last incidences. There are so many to count in America... How can you be in a home and not know that your child has an arsenal in his bedroom? What kind of negligent parenting is that? When I was being raised, we didn't have a door on our bedroom. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We, don't have, we didn't have any locks. We couldn't lock our parents out. What? We lock them out, they'll knock us out. <laughs> lock and knock rhymed. And they remind you, you didn't own anything in this house. Children, I know there were some exceptions to the rule, but I need to say, I've seen some shifts in society. Among young folk, respect was something that when young folk walked past older people, they didn't call them by their first name. Even if it was a neighbor. We never called people... James? No, it's Mr. Johnson. That's how we were raised. Respect. Nowadays, kids talk to adults like they're on the same level. Back in our day, oh, and we do that, the neighbor would say, your son called me James. Remind him I'm Mr. Johnson. We didn't break into conversations while adults were talking. Oh, that was, that was dungeon time. Go to your room and stay there till I tell you, come out. And if you don't think that my parents were serious, I couldn't go to my own birthday party. <laughs> I tell you, I never did that again. They told me not to do something. I did it. My mother told me not to throw the ball over the fence because there was a neighbor over there. They had a mean dog. And I don't know where the words came from, but I didn't obey her, and I threw the ball over the fence, and she told me, now go get it. And the neighbor's dog was in the house. You could hear him scratching the door. When I got over there and I couldn't climb back, I said some words that were very inappropriate. And not only did she beat me with a window pole, but when Papa came home, he reminded me that you do not talk that way. But that was not the end of the story. She said, for that, we're having a birthday party this Sunday, and you're not coming. 
Whose birthday is it? It's yours. I saw a folk blow out my birthday candles. You think that didn't hurt? You see, brother, there's a simple principle. Let the child feel the pain of their decisions now so they could understand the responsibility that you bore on shaping them later. Too many people want to be, want to be their children's friend. Oh, my dad was, he was the father and I was the son. He spoke, I listened. This day and age, people calling parents by the first name. Back in our day, that'd be like dentistry time. Yeah, we going to the dentist to put that tooth back in. I'm not talking about abuse either because I was never abused, but I was disciplined. But I threw that ball over the fence, and when I came back, Mama gave me a whipping. Papa came home and gave me a whipping. And I had a birthday party that Sunday, Donna. And my room was down the hallway from the kitchen. I could see clearly in the kitchen. It was filled with kids. They were singing happy birthday to me down the hall. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, could I come? No. Ah. They ain't going to die. Let them cry. They're not going to die. Some folks think that if a kid cries, they're going to die. They are not closely associated. They may rhyme, die, and cry, but they're not going to die. But I tell you what, I never did that again. That was the only birthday party I missed that was being held in my honor. Oh, now, I got a piece of cake after the party was over. Now, here's a piece of cake, and I ate it by myself. <laughs> but I learned where the authority began and where it ended. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Young folk today. Oh, no. You send a young kid to their room today, they want to go to the room. They don't want to talk to you. They got TV, computer, phone, internet, refrigerator. refrigerator. They could, <laughs> you could put them in their room and they could survive for 90 days without talking to you. Right? Nowadays, kids got it all. Back in the day, we went to our bed. No, we went to bed. And when I turn enough television on, it's like, no. I remember one day, I, I didn't want to go to school, so I played like I was sick until 3.30. You know, 3.30 is when kids come home from school. So at 3.30, I got well. <laughs> Automatically, I got better. <laughs> and I wanted to go outside. Papa said, no, no. It don't work that way around here. You were too sick to go to school. You are too sick to go outside and play. But I feel a lot better now. No, it don't work that way around here. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, those rules. So he told me, no, you were too sick to go to school. You feel better, do your homework. But I don't have any homework. Well, do what you did yesterday all over again. <laughs> That's what dads do, right? So when children grow up and you become something of vital importance in society, you could say, my papa chiseled me, molded me. And although I made some dumb mistakes still, I got back on track because I could hear Papa saying, boy, if I was still alive. <laughs> but Hophni and Phinehas. Eli was a man of great influence. He was not just an arbitrary father. In the book of Prophets, Patriarchs and Prophets, we read these words on page 575. What kind of man was he? Eli was priest and judge in Israel. How could you have corrupt sons and be in such a high position? 
He held the highest and most responsible position among the people of God. As a man divinely chosen for the sacred duties of the priesthood and set over the land as the highest judicial authority, he was looked up to as an example. And he wielded a great influence over the tribes of Israel. He could tell other folk what to do. But although he had been appointed to govern the people, he did not rule his own household. Eli had a name. Eli had a position. Eli had no backbone. His sons were in charge, not the father. At every turn, Eli's life, when you read this story as we go through the whole thing, when you read the story, Eli's life, God warned him at so many turns what responsibility was all about as a high priest, as one with great authority. He could tell folk what to do. He could administrate well. He could lead out in the temple services and give everybody a responsible thing, but he could not rule his own house. And the Apostle Paul says if a man can't rule his own house, he cannot be responsible for the work of God. Which brings me to point one, Eli was lazy and easy-loving. Proverbs 29, look at this, in verse 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. How many times have you seen children arrested for things I was really delighted one day when I, this was a mother, by the way, so I'm going to give moms a little prop right here. Maybe moms could tell some of the dads what to do, because you know moms, moms are tough. Moms are, for the most part, moms would knock a kid out. You know, moms don't play that. But I remember watching on the news there's a group of young folk that were just rebellious in the city. And the mother caught the video of the news while it was happening and identified one of those young men as her son, got in her car, drove to that section of the city, grabbed that young man by his ear. It was all being filmed took him home and wore him out. And instead of him filing child abuse charges, the police of the city commended that mother for shining his hiney. <laughs> she first read him the riot act, grabbed this grown-up kid, took him home, and she got commended. That was the one kid that could not declare that he had been abused by his mother. She didn't abuse him. She disciplined him because he was a teenager, grown-up kid. First thing she probably said, no, no son, like, no son of mine is going to behave like this in society. But look at that passage. A child left to himself brings shame. You've heard me tell the story, but it fits right here about the cowboys and Indians. And this story was told during the 1800s about how uh, in Arizona, and Ma Ram, you'd, Ron, you'd appreciate this, how many of the people that were settling into Indian territory couldn't find their way through the desert during the night. 
but the Indians could. And on many occasions, they had Indians guide them through the desert, hard to find their way during the night. And one day, one of the Caucasian uh, cowboys, they call them the range, they call them range men, the cowboys. He said, how do you guys find your way through the darkness of the desert at night? Is it something different with your eyesight? They said, no, no, not at all, not at all. You see, when, when, we, when we plant vines, we bend them into a shape when they are moldable so that when we touch it, the shape will tell us what direction to go. So when the plant grows up, it may, have you seen those strange-looking plants that look like they're in a knot, all bent out? How do they, no, they don't grow that way. They are bent that way. So and there's a plant that looked like it was pointing in this direction. He said, when that was moldable, we bent that twig into a knot. So when it grew up to be hard, it was solidified in that direction. So we touched that plant and knew, okay, this is the direction. Touch another plant, this is the direction. We followed our own guides, but we did it when the plant was moldable. And the Indian said, there are things, two things we learned. You can mold a child when they're young, but you can't change them when they're old. A child left to himself, unmolded. What happened to Eli? Let's go back to another quotation. This is so powerful in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets. Page 7, page 575. Eli was an indulgent father. If it was today, maybe Eli would have a remote. Or maybe Eli would be on the phone, all, all on the computer or texting all the time. His kids walking in and out of the house. He don't even see what they're carrying in or carrying out. Indulgent father. Maybe eating all the time. Loving peace and ease, he did not exercise his authority to correct the evil habits and passions of his children. There are so many parents that ignore the behaviors of their children, and they say they will grow out of it. You don't grow out of evil. You grow into it and become even more evil. You ever seen weeds grow out of your garden? <laughs> Man, those, don't worry about those weeds. They're going to grow out. No, you, Larry McLucas can tell you. I praise God for a man like Larry McLucas. He comes to our house and gets out there with his 4 by 4 and rakes and cuts bushes and does all kinds of stuff for us. Praise God. But when he leaves, I could tell the difference between the plant and the weeds. He gets rid of the weeds. Nothing grows out. We grow into good we don't, we, we don't grow into good because of our nature. We have to be molded and guided. And sometimes there are those that would... And, and it's, not, it's not wrong to counsel a child. It's good to help them understand why they should not do what they did. But Eli, when you study his life, he was fearful of disciplining his sons because he was fearful of their backlash. And some kids could be pretty, pretty mean. Some kids could be pretty vengeful. But if they're young, you have to mold them through that, help them to see that those behaviors are not appreciated. That's why Psalm 126 and verse 5 shares this. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. You know what that means? It's better to cry now with your children as you take them through difficult times than cry later when you visit them in prison. 
Those who sow in tears, let the crying be on this side, not on that side. Too many people are visiting their children in incarceration because they didn't cry with them when they were young. So they're crying now, and it, nothing triggers me more than parents saying, I don't know where I went wrong, but rewind the videotape. You'll see it. You ignore those moments when they should have been disciplined. Another quotation, and I once again apologize for so many quotes, but it's just too powerful to ignore it. Prophets and King, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 575. Rather than contend with them or punish them, he would submit to their will and give them their own way. Eli shrank from his duty because it involved what? Crossing the will of his sons and would make it necessary to punish and deny them. Without weighing the terrible consequences that would follow his course, he indulged his children in whatever they desired. You know those little kids that you see that three, four, five, six years old, when Christmas comes, they turn to demons in Walmart? Yeah, I want that. Give me that. I want to say, growing up, my, my sister and I had the best Christmases. Not because we demanded anything, but Papa believed when you do right, you will be rewarded. He metered discipline with love and reward. But when you did wrong, you didn't get commended like you did right. And we came to realize that you don't commend a child for doing wrong because you are fearful of how they're going to think about you. They will grow up and realize, as many of you now do, that mama and daddy was tough, but now I see why. Amen. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. We have one of our church members that's home. And this is very interesting. I'm glad he's watching. But... Another example, uh, we have, um, you know, Ian Van de Valk and Liam, his son. Just to give you an example of the father-son father relationship, this is so funny. My wife and I witnessed this not too long ago. We were visiting with Ian and Angela at their home. And um, Ian was giving us a tour, and we were, I think, maybe by the garage area, wherever we were, and we paused, and Liam came in, his son, and he said, Hey, Dad. How much do we pay for mortgage? <laughs> How much do we pay for mortgage for this house? And Ian looked at Angela and I, and then he looked at his son and said, none of your business. He said, when you, got, when you have a job and you're paying bills around here, then you will know, none of your business. I would have given anything to record the look on Liam's face. His little glasses got bigger. His head got smaller. And he recognized, I, I should not have asked that question. I'm going to go hide in the dryer. And when you need me, just open the door. I'll be in there shrinking. <laughs> His dad reminded him at that moment, he said, none of your business. When you paying bills around here, then you ask questions like that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No. Parents drew the line between adult topics and children's topics. 
I, I like to talk, but they let me know when. And don't run in the room and break in without saying, excuse me. And it's not that they didn't hear. They'll say, wait. But Liam was amazed when I saw He never did that again, by the way, I guarantee you. You see, the reality of this is, and there's some, parallel, there's some parallels that we have to get. Hate me now, and you'll love me later. Love me now, and you'll hate me later. Let me put that together. Because I've seen this dynamic played out. That children get to the point where they are, their parents have given them so many things, and they still are not changing. They're getting worse and worse and worse because the parent is simply, like we read just a moment ago, indulging, indulging the son or the child in whatever that child wants, thinking that a gift is going to change their hearts, when in fact what they needed to do is they, need, they needed to be molded. So I learned growing up, I remember when I wanted a brand new car, when Hondas first came out, when the Honda Accord first came out, I'm, I'm appealing to the old folk, young folk, just wait a moment here. I had a picture of a Honda Accord right above my bed. And I said, Papa, I need a Honda Accord. He said, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, but if you buy me one, I could take you wherever you want me to, wherever you want to go. I could drive you to the store. Now, mind you, we live in New York. Most people in New York don't have a car because you don't really need one. We have the best mass transit, but I was trying to convince him. He said, no, you don't need a car. And then I realized, ah, he does not like Japanese cars. Papa, can you buy me a Buick instead? <laughs> you don't need a Buick. One day he shocked me. After I came home, he said, Junior, came downstairs to his room. He said, come on in. Said, here's a thousand dollars. Go put it down on a car. <laughs> Is this a joke, Pop? <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because Papa would send me to the store with a dollar, and it would cost 97 cents, and he asked me for his three pennies. <laughs> Where's my chain? And when he gave me a dollar, he'd go like this make sure it didn't stick together. Anybody have cheap parents like that? <laughs> I said, Papa, it's only a dollar. I'm just making sure it didn't stick together. So when he gave me that $1,000, like, what? $1,000? I went out and bought my 1976 Toyota Corona station wagon. It was, at that time, it was already eight years old. But I drove that thing like it was brand new. And when I gave Papa the first ride in it, the muffler fell off. But I want to tell you, <laughs> that's Papa's way of saying, I love you. But I learned how to work on that broken car. I rebuilt the engine, and when the time came for my wife and I to drive to Florida, we drove from New York all the way to Florida in that 1976 Toyota Corona wagon. When the time came to join Heritage Singers, my wife and I drove from Florida all the way through the hot desert of Highway 10 in July with no air conditioner in that car, and it brought us back to Florida. And every time I saw that car, I remember Papa gave me that money. So you don't need. And he knew the difference between our needs and our wants. And so even to this very day, I'm learning the difference between my needs and my wants. Mike, I was recently at B&H Photo in New York City, and Mike know what that is. And I called my wife after I left B&H, and I said, you know, honey, B&H Photo is a techie's dream store, everything in the world, cameras and everything you could think of. 
video and a life. You want to go there because it's, like it's like the drug addict's technical store. You know, it's, like, it's like a halfway house for gadgetarians. And I walked in and walked out and I said, Honey, you know, it feels so good to go there today and realize I don't need anything. I felt good. I, I, left. I, I left with money in my pocket because I didn't need anything. And I realized, now, how did I get to that point, you know? You don't always need stuff. Leave and use it for better things. But Papa was that way. And so what I learned is what um, a man by the name of Frederick Wertham said, and this is a great quotation. He says, a child's mind is like a bank. Like a what? He said, whatever you put in it, you get back in 10 years with interest. So what are you putting in your children's mind? A child's mind is like a bank. Children are not born knowing how to love or hate. They are born self-centered. If you don't believe that, miss their feeding time. Children are not born prejudiced. They learn it. They are not born hateful. They learn it. Whatever they see, they will emulate. So don't just tell them, be the example of what they should be. You see, Eli failed to educate his sons about life and serving the Lord. And that was the big problem. Great leader, but he didn't train his children the way they should have gone. Let's look at another quotation. He says, instead of regarding, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 575 again, instead of regarding the education of his sons as one of the most important of his responsibilities, he treated the matter as of little consequence. He indulged his children in whatever they desired and neglected the work of fitting them for the service of God and the duties of life. Let me say something here that some of you might not necessarily agree with. Let us not, let us not incarcerate our children with games. Some people are making their children nothing more than a gamer. All they do is play games. They got every, every box you can think of. Xbox, PS3, 4, 5, 6. I was standing in New York City, my wife and I, a number of years ago. We were in Times Square. And it was approaching midnight. That's when you go to Times Square in New York. After 10 o'clock at night, that's when it wakes up. And there was this long, long, long line of people wrapping two streets and around a corner. And I said, where's that line going? So we followed the line and it was going to, uh, it was going to uh, uh, Toys R Us. I said, What's, what do you guys do? Men, grown men, standing in line for hours. What are you standing here for? I'm waiting for the release of the next PS whatever, PlayStation. And there are some guys today that their children will grow up to be nothing more than a person that just plays games all his life. Not that they are wrong in and of themselves, but if that's all they do, then you have failed to train that child, as it says, for the service of God and the duties of life. That's why when I watched a commercial a number of years ago, a kid was sitting in front of the potential employer, and he says, I heard you have computer skills. What do you do? He says, well, I have the high score in Galazda. But you said on your resume you have computer skills. And he stopped mentioning the high scores of all the games that he conquered. He said, that's not, that's not the purpose of this job. Understand 
that when a child leaves home, if they cannot go out into the world and understand how to balance a checkbook, and I know that sounds old, but that means if you have more month than money, then something's wrong. If you don't know how to keep your house going, keep your lights on, keep the water going, keep your yard clean, take care of your, 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 your responsibilities, know how to return a good tithe and offering. Amen there, somebody. These are the basics of life that Eli failed to train his sons to do. But God's intention was that the sons of Eli would impact the world in a positive way. But if the world has a greater impact on your children than you do, then something is wrong. There's some children that come to church today without Bibles. Why? Because they come from homes where the Bible is hardly used. If the Bible is not used at home, it's seen as a non-necessary piece of equipment. A little girl was cleaning the living room one day, and um, she found a Bible. And she said, Daddy, whose is this? He said, that's God's book. She said, well, Daddy, we should return it to him because we never use it. Why do children... They would make sure not leave home without their phone, but my Bible is optional. That's an indication of the temperature of society. So the Lord says on page 575 in this continuous story, Eli allowed his children to control him. The children guided the father. Eli was persuaded by the desires of his children. So when time came to Hophni and Phinehas to be a people of equity at the temple, because people came to the temple, they were part of the temple priesthood, there was a certain amount of uh, meat and fat as they meted it out for the services, Hophni and Phinehas would take more for themselves and, and rob the folk that came to the temple that paid money for the sacrificial services. And because they were not guided by God, if their father told them anything to do that would correct their ways, they would get angry. Look at the Bible says, 1 Samuel 2, verse 16. Because people complained. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you take as much as your heart desires. That's who they were. He would then answer him, no. But you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. That's how they were. They were, they were not children any longer. They were now in the temple working. So whatever they wanted, they, did, they just took it. If, 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 if Bob wouldn't give me what I wanted, I said, Bob, give it to me. I would take it by force. That's how they were. That's how they dealt with the people in church. story is deep. Page 576, Patriarchs and Prophets. They not only demanded more than their right, but refused to wait even until the fat had been burned as an offering to God. That was the sweet-smelling savor. They persisted in claiming whatever portion pleased them, and if denied threatened to take it by violence. These are sons. December 4th, 2021, 
so many terrible stories. I heard the story about a 15-year-old boy whose father decided as a gift he's going to buy his son a 9-millimeter, 6-hour handgun. 15 years old. He bought it for him. He said, come with me. They went to the store. That's why today, nowadays, when they say pass an 18 or better, you got weak dads. That, that law means absolutely nothing because the father is the problem, not the child. So he took him to the gun store. He said, pick out the one you want. And the father bought this 9-millimeter gun for his son. And the son, he said, now, well, I'll keep it in my room, but you have access to it whenever you want to. And then that kid went to school, and the teacher contacted the school because they saw the son Googling the internet on how to buy ammunition for his gun. Called the father and told him, your son is Googling how to buy bullets for the gun. The dad said, nothing to be worried about. We trained him. He's okay. Two days later, he shot and killed four of his classmates with that same handgun. And when the parents went to court, they said, we're not liable because it was his action. They were found liable. They were the one that were prosecuted by the court because they put a weapon in the hand of a 15-year-old and they ignored the evidences of what they saw was developing before their eyes. The school warned them. They said, he's Googling how to buy weapons, he, how to buy bullets. He found the bullets, killed four classmates, wiped them out because the parents failed to take note of the direction that that son was going. Eli did the same thing. But I want to say nothing is as unpleasant as a child that disrespects authority. The teacher couldn't change him. The society couldn't change him. The church can't change him. What the, fail, what the parent failed to do at the house, the church and the school cannot do otherwise than what the child sees. Here's another quote. Page 576, Patriarchs and Prophets. I have not used as many quotes as I'm using today, but I want to tell you, this is too powerful to ignore. The father had not corrected their want of reverence for his authority. They could care less how he led. They didn't respect him in the house. Had not checked their disrespect for the solemn services of the sanctuary, how they behaved when they were in church, quote-unquote. And when they reached manhood, they were full of deadly fruits of skepticism and rebellion. Meaning... Eli could say, well, let's read about this. They said, no, I don't want to read about that. See, because he didn't mold them and they were young. Now, they're skeptical. Is God really God? Did he really create the world? These are, these are the skeptics that society makes because the parent doesn't show them the authority of the word of God. If, you don't, if, 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 if you've not done it so far and your children are still moldable and respectful, it's not too late to start. That's why Proverbs 22.8 says this. He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. What is, what is Solomon the wise man saying? He is saying that the time is long past for you to do anything to change the way that child is. The rod of your anger. Now you're, now you're disciplining them because you're angry. But it has no impact at all. The rod of his anger will fail. You can't change them. They're too far gone. What a responsibility. That's why those of you that have godly fathers, you better take them to the mall tomorrow and buy them something. Say, Daddy, thank you for being a godly father.
Daddy, thank you for being there. I could put my head on your shoulder. I could talk to you about anything. I can come to you. Reward the godly fathers. Can the church say amen? Because that's what the Lord wants. You see, God, we say God is long-suffering and God is merciful. But God, even God, has boundaries that we cannot cross. But some believe, some believe, listen now as I'm about to wind up, some believe that because they determine to be rebellious, that somehow God is going to ignore the direction of their lives. So they persist in rebellion. That's why a wise man says this to us today. Let me read this quotation first. Prop, Patriarchs and Prophets 577. Dreading thus to, public, to bring public disgrace and condemnation upon them. That means Eli was afraid to now correct them in public. He sustained them in the most sacred positions of trust. He still permitted them to mingle their corruption with the holy service of God and to inflict upon the cause of truth an injury which years could not efface. But when the judge of Israel neglected his work, God took the matter in his hands. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the Son of Men is fully set in them to do evil. Because they don't see the immediate impact, because God hasn't knocked them off the horse yet, because they seem to be succeeding in their behavior, they, they get to the point where they, they forget that God is still God, and they will have to give an account. Let's wind up here. 578. Those who follow their own inclinations in blind affection for their children, indulging them in the gratification of their selfish desires, are more anxious to shield their reputation than to glorify God, more desirous to please their children than to please the Lord and to keep his service from every appearance of evil. Isn't this a solemn message? There was today, 2022, I'm dating it by saying that today in these closing hours of earth's history, people need People need to do what God has called them to do. Be a father, loving but disciplining father. And my last point, Eli placed too light an emphasis on discipline. Look at Hebrews 12 and verse 11. What's the blessing of being a father who allows God's heart to mold your way in dealing with your children? The Lord says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Right now, it seems to be a tough job, dads. But painful, the children feel that. Nevertheless, afterwards, what's that word say? Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you mold them now, they might say, oh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to. Later on, they say, Mom, thank you. Dad, whoo, thank you. Because there's an afterwards. There's a before and there's an after. Whatever you want your child to be in the after, be what you need to be in the before. Yeah. Page 578. Patriarchs and Prophets. 
He should first have attempted to restrain evil by mild measures. But if these did not avail, he should have subdued the wrong by the severest means. The story of a man who, um, <laughs> it's a kind of joke here because it's a, we have, there's a backstory to this, but there's a man who, when his son was being born, when his son was born, he put a yellow pencil in the top pocket of his shirt. He always had a shirt on with a yellow pencil. So when his son was going, he'd take that yellow pencil out and tap him on the bottom of his feet very lightly, tell him, no, 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 stop that, cut that, no, no, cut that out, cut that out, cut that out, cut that out. And it got to the point where when he just took his pencil out, the kid would stop. <laughs> and when he grew up, he said, the kid told stories about my my dad has a yellow pencil. <laughs> he learned about that. You see, what happens when a child is young, it stays with them, like the story of the elephant. I showed you this story a number of years ago where there's a huge elephant, many, many tons, huge, massive creature. And people came to the park, this was in India, to ride that elephant. But, but it was a little, little rope around his, a little thin rope around one leg of the elephant. And people that came to the park said, he's only got a string around his leg how are you going to restrain him well the zookeeper said when that elephant was a baby that rope was around his leg and he tried many times to break it and he couldn't so right now he doesn't even try anymore Amen. it's the same rope but he grew up to think he restrained him when he was young therefore as he got older he no longer attempted to have his own way. There's a time. There's a time. What is there, friends? There's a time. Page 579. Those who honor me, I will honor. 1 Samuel 2.30. Look at this. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God is saying, I want to do something for you. I want to make a difference in the life of a family. But you've got to honor God when you can because if you, we fail to honor God when we can, later on, God will not honor us. What happened? Patriarchs and Prophets 579. There is no greater curse upon households than to allow the youth to have their own way. 2022, it still applies today. Because the time will come when God will remove his blessings from those that could have been more prosperous. But they persisted in dishonoring God, and now they get older and God can't do anything with them. God sends warning after warning. He did that. He did that. And here's how the story ends. He did that. He did that. So years went by. Hophni and Phinehas grew in their rebellion, their evil ways. But God said, okay, enough is enough. And 1 Samuel 2 verse 34. Now this shall be a sign to you, that is to Eli, that will come upon you, that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. God gave them a long time. This was not a, this was not a rush to judgment. God is long-suffering towards us, willing, not willing that any should perish. But the Lord said, Enough. I've given them position, authority, but they've chosen to ignore my mercy. I'm going to cut it off. And both of them are going to die in one day. 
But this is a deeper application than just fathers. This is also for leaders. This is also people in positions of responsibility. You could ignore an evil till it gets to the place where you now become a partner in that evil. Look at this. Page 578, Patriarchs and Prophets. We are just as responsible for evils that we might have checked in others by exercise of parental or pastoral authority as if the act had been our own. That means when you have a position of responsibility and you don't try to help somebody be guided in the right direction, you are just as responsible for the wrong direction that they are going in because you, like Eli, are more concerned about how they feel than their salvation. What happened? Here's how the story ends. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 20 to 22. You can read the whole story when you get home, but look what happened. This is about when Phineas's wife was giving childbirth. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, that was Eli and Phinehas. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Tragic end to a life that could have been different. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, God removed them from their position, and they died in abject rebellion. Phineas's wife dies when she gives birth to a child they name Ichabod. Eli, hearing the news, dies himself. The casualty of four people, it didn't have to be that way if he had only molded the child. Here's my closing thought. The glory of God will never depart from the heart of a child that sees the glory of God in the heart of the Father. The glory of God will never depart from the heart of a child who sees the glory of God in the heart of the Father. The takeaways, as Jill would say. One, let's say it together. A godly father does what? Teaches. Teaches. The way of the Lord, the way of life. He does not ignore the responsibility. Number two, a godly father provide an example worth following. He doesn't just say be this, but he's that by example. They are not just hearing what he says, but they're watching how he lives. Number three, a godly father does what? Discipline their children. Not because they dislike them, but because they dislike their ways. They are molding that tender plant to become a fruitful plant in the garden of God. Number four, a godly father loves his children. He doesn't just discipline them, but he pulls them to his chest and say, I love you, young lady. I love you, young man. He shows by example, because without example, we are nothing but a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And lastly, number five, Godly fathers pray for and with their children. Why is this important? Because there are no perfect dads. 
Amen, dads? The only perfect dad is our Heavenly Father. They pray for their children and they pray with their children. And let's repeat this closing text together. Is the church ready? Here we go. Proverbs 22, 6. Church, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I'm going to have the father stand. If you are a father, if you have been a father by default, if you've been an adopted father, please stand. I want all the dads to stand. I want all the dads to stand. I want to read something to you that, um, can we say amen for the fathers? Amen. It's not an easy job, but God never said it would be. But he will bless you. My wife actually found this. My wife contributed to this, but this is so beautiful, the picture of a father. God took the strength of a mountain, the majesty of a tree, the warmth of a summer sun, the calm of a quiet sea, the generous soul of nature, the comforting arm of night, the wisdom of the ages, the power of the eagle's flight, the joy of a morning in spring, the faith of a mustard seed, the patience of eternity, the depth of a family's need. Then God combined these qualities. When there was nothing more to add, he knew his masterpiece was complete, and so he called him Dad. I want to pray for our fathers right now. I want to pray that God will give you wisdom. It's never too late to make that phone call that you hadn't made in years. Your children may be grown and older. You might say, I just want to call you and say, I love you. I want to just call you and say, A, B, and C. Connect those bridges that may not be connected. Build on the time that still lasts because God is our Heavenly Father and He wants to bless us. Let us pray. Gracious, loving, Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, today for these men that are standing, for these men to look to you, to know that you are a good, good father. You said you'll never leave us and never forsake us, and you haven't. You have chastised and molded us when we needed it. And, Lord, it is so true. We have needed it. And we pray today that as the world pauses to celebrate Father's Day, that the fathers that are standing here and the fathers that are watching will redeem the time. It's never too late to apologize for the things that one has failed to do and to communicate through a repentant heart the things that one should have done. I pray also for the receptive hearts of the children whether sons or daughters, whether one or many, that the father would take the responsibility and say, this is what I want my child to be. Therefore, this is who God wants me to be. Forgive them where they have failed, but because you are God of mercy, strengthen them to be one who desires to still learn from a perfect heavenly father. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's fathers said, Amen. Amen.
and amen.